<clears throat> nobody. 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 Nobody rage short stories. Hi everyone, I'm Jeremy. And I'm Megan. And you're watching Nobody Read Short Stories, where we read the short stories so you don't have to. And you can listen to all of our previous um, episodes and watch them as well on our website, nobodyreadshortstories.com. Tonight's episode is the penultimate episode for season three. This is going to be episode nine. And it's really exciting because we have Hadley Moore reading her own piece. And she said she's brought along her biggest, uh, biggest fan. Mm -hmm. And just a heads up, her biggest fan is her cat. And Ernie likes to verbalize, so just let him enjoy the show. Yeah, yeah. So if you hear some some cat sounds in the background, do he's not into be, it. <laughs> do not be perturbed. Those are those are joyous sounds. He's excited about <laughs> about Hadley's piece. So uh, tonight, um, the story we are going to follow our main character Jeremy as he struggles to repair his relationship with his estranged wife, both for himself and their daughter. So here is the wonderful Hadley Moore reading her short story, Ordinary Circumstances. Thank you. So I'm Hadley Moore and this is Ordinary Circumstances. My kid likes going to the doctor. I can't explain it. She greets him like he's Santa Claus and she's sitting there shivering in her yellow socks and her kitten underpants and a paper gown with clowns on it. The doctor, I like him, he was my pediatrician, is this old guy with a bow tie and suspenders. He's got one hell of a head of silver hair. His hairline hasn't moved in decades. Mine's been moving since I was 22. Now I'm 40. And I contemplated as he talks to my daughter. Lillian, how are you feeling? I'm very glad to see you. I'm glad to see you too, Lil says, grinning. He sits on his rolling stool and peers at her, and she looks down at him from her perch on the exam table. She's had a cough, I say, and they ignore me. Lil coughs, and he brings his stethoscope to his ears. Let's see what we can hear. She corrects him. Let's hear what we can hear. He tips an imaginary hat to her and winks, then slips the metal disc under the top of her paper gown. He turns his head my way and listens. He's not looking at me. He's concentrating. He moves the metal disc and listens some more. Lillian is fine. She's had a cough for two days is all. She's, has, she's seven and healthy, though small. This is a well child visit and she'll get a flu shot and have a nice chat with her friend, Dr. Phillips. He moves the metal disc again and my kid leans forward. Lillian, the doctor whispers, don't hold your breath. She giggles and looks at me and I wink too. And then she turns serious and remembers to breathe for several seconds. Everybody's quiet and Lil says, are you listening to my heart now? The doctor says, yes. She's quiet again. Breathe Lillian, he says. Can you hear God, she asks him, in my heart? Lil, I start. This kind of stuff comes from her mother. I can just hear her. 
God is in your heart, Lillian. But Dr. Phillips interrupts. Well, he says, and looks at me. I shrug. Not literally, he tells her. He takes off the stethoscope. Do you know what that means, literally? She shakes her head. It means that what I hear with my ears is your heart beating and your lungs breathing. So I don't hear God the way I hear your insides or the way you hear me now. It's a pretty good answer. I'd have been tempted just to tell her no. He keeps going, but here in the middle of your chest where your heart is, he taps his own chest and he taps Lil's. Sometimes it seems to people that they feel happiness there or love or they put their hands over their hearts when they hear the national anthem because they want to show it's important. Do you know the national anthem? She nods. It's news to me. Dr. Phillips puts his hand over his heart and Lillian does too. My tiny daughter, last time we were here, she was in the 30th percentile for height and weight. She puts her tiny hand on her tiny chest and turns to me and I put my hand on my chest too. And it's like, we're all going to break out in, oh, say, can you see? So if people say God is in their hearts, what they mean is they have a special feeling and it seems like it comes from right here. He holds his hand there a moment before placing it on his knee and Lillian and I drop our hands too. Okay, she says, I can feel it. Great, the doctor answers and he gets on with it. He looks in her eyes and ears and nose and taps her knees and does all the usual stuff. And when he takes out his chart and compares her numbers, we learn she's inched up to the 35th percentile. That's wonderful, Lillian. You're growing, Dr. Phillips tells her. You're not a large child, but you're a healthy one. She grins and grins and he shakes her hand and shakes mine. A lovely daughter you have, Jeremy, and bows on his way out. And when the nurse comes in to do the flu shot, Will wants me to note she is very brave and it doesn't even hurt that much. When she leaves, when we leave, she takes my hand. You're a wiseacre, she tells me. You're a real Weisenheimer. You're a knucklehead, I answer. You're a knucklehead and a bonehead and a Weisenheimer. Weisenheimer is her favorite. You're a ninny hammer, I say. You're a scallywag. We go on like that and I take her back to school. When she gets out of the car, she shouts, you're a nincompoop, and I blow her a kiss. Lillian's fine, I tell my wife later over the phone. Tiny, but not as tiny. That's great, May says. I thought so. She seems more robust. She'll still be a runt. Maybe she's a late bloomer. I doubt it. Lil did things early teeth, walk, talk, and May's people and my people are not impressive physical specimens. I listen to May breathing. Maybe I can't even really hear her, but I know she's there, breathing. She's at her parents' restaurant, and what I for sure do hear is a lot of clatter and shouting. It's dinner time, and I resist asking my wife whether she's coming to our house after. But I throw her a bone. Lil asked the doctor if he could hear God while he was listening to her heart. Oh, May says, that is so sweet. What did he say? What the doctor said reminds me now of, yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus. He said not literally, but sort of. 
if you feel it. It's a terrible answer, and May is quiet. Lil said she feels it. My wife exhales. I love that, she says, but I'm not sure how to respond right away. So she says, I know you don't love it. Honey, I'm just telling you. We both hear how weird that sounds, me calling her honey, and it makes me sad that it sounds so weird. May comes around sometimes. She brings us fried rice and vegetables from the restaurant or sweet and sour chicken or mushu pork. Lillian has two twin beds in her room and when May sleeps there, I can barely sleep at all. I lie in our bed and feel like I'm being electrocuted. I don't really know what it's like to be electrocuted, but I'm pretty sure it's exactly like lying in a queen size bed down the hall from your wife who hasn't let you touch her in months. Just try telling me electrocution isn't like that. I married the only Chinese woman in Northern Michigan. That's not really true. It's just a stupid thing I like to say. There are two other Asian kids in Lil's school actually, and two black kids. One's biracial, like her, and a handful of Latino kids and some Native Americans. Mostly they're white, but she's not the only one who isn't. Lillian appears to take our new precarious living situation in stride. She's happy to see May when she comes, but doesn't ask what the hell is going on when she doesn't. And she visits her grandparents like normal and lives in the same house with me and goes to school and seems just fine. But I fear this can't last. Plus, May's gotten religion and I'm a jerk for being skeptical, especially since it started when her cousin's kid was dying of leukemia. Kids aren't supposed to die of leukemia anymore. You hear cure rates like 60, 70% and you think, well, that covers this kid then. But Albert ended up in that smaller percent for reasons that are incomprehensible. Besides the cancer, he was healthy, which sounds nuts. Oh, he's got a strong heart and lungs? That's just terrific. But when the cancer gets him, it's going to stop his top-notch organs too. May and her cousin are pretty tight. And when Albert was diagnosed, her cousin somehow got tangled up with this cuckoo Christian witch doctor who talked about energy and the light of Christ and giving Jesus your burden, which was harmless in the sense that she didn't suggest stopping treatment or anything. But listening to this woman added up to a lot of wasted time and wasted energy. I didn't meet her, but I heard about her because May fell for it too. When Albert died, almost a year ago, May told Lillian he'd gone to heaven. Lillian asked me if that was true. So I told her, and here I quote myself, yep. I couldn't say no, Lil, your cousin's nothing anymore. He's meat now and he's going in the ground. But neither could I muster any enthusiasm for heaven. Yep, was good enough for Lillian though. It wasn't good enough for May. And that's when our marriage started to trickle away. I couldn't comfort my wife in the way she wanted. She says I was, am, disdainful of her faith. But it's not, it's not so much disdain as bewilderment. Before Albert died, May believed in God in an offhand way. God was a comforting idea. She's second generation, but her parents came here as kids. So they're all used to the American ambivalent secular approach to religious holidays. We'd acknowledge Jesus at Christmas and Easter, 
but the main show was the trees and the eggs and the magical gift givers. And she'd do prayers with Lil. Now I lay me down to sleep. And Lillian would go along in her tiny sing-song voice. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. May would do prayers. We'd read a couple of stories and Lil and I would exchange a few old timey insults. You're a slugabed. You're a jackanapes. You're a clodhopper. You're a Weisenheimer. Then we'd turn out the light and several nights a week, I'd seduce my wife in our big queen size bed. That was back when prayers were more like nursery rhymes and God was a comforting idea and none of us had ever been to a 10 year old's funeral. Besides May's newly fervent belief and unpredictable habitating though, she's a solid person and a good mother. She sees Lillian a lot. She comes here and takes her to the restaurant and her parents' house and even my parents' house. She shows up for school things and helps at the restaurant even while working 30 hours as a dental hygienist. But sometimes I come home and find her doing laundry or weeding in the front and that stuff just kills me. The fact that May is still invested in our household does seem encouraging. Her paychecks go into our joint account and she hasn't mentioned separate accounts or getting her own place. She stays at her parents, I assume, when she isn't in Lillian's extra bed or divorce. I love May. Jesus Christ, what am I supposed to do with that? I can't turn it off and that is the cruelty of desire. By desire, I don't mean just sex. I mean longing, like soul longing, if that's not ridiculous. I do all the usual things, take care of Lil, go to work, keep the house from falling apart. But for months, it's like I've been screaming. There are two parallel Jeremy's. One carries on and the other one can't stop screaming. That's probably how Albert's parents feel too. It was Dr. Phillips who sent Albert to the Children's Hospital in Grand Rapids, where they diagnosed him. What a job. I wonder why he's still doing it. He must be 70. When Lil had strep throat six months ago, he said to me, ah, Jeremy, I've thought about your family every day since young Albert died. I bet if I asked him how many of his patients have died as children, he'd be able to tell me right off. But when you go into pediatrics, I suppose you know what you're signing up for. So anyway, for reasons having to do with wanting to please May and wanting to keep her on the phone, I tell her about Lillian feeling God in her heart, even though it worries me some. What the heck does Lil think she feels? After May and I recover from how weird it is when I call her honey, she says she'll come by that evening, but it's Friday, so she might be late at the restaurant. I have that familiar jubilant feeling followed immediately by that familiar despairing feeling. And that's pretty much my life these days. Double Jeremy's, screaming and getting on with it. It's six o'clock and I go find Lil in her room and suggest we go to the beach. In September, it's still nice up here. You might not want to swim, but I'll sit on the sand and, walk and watch Lake Michigan and let Lil run around any day. We even go in winter with hats and coats. It's crazy how dangerous the lake is. Summer and winter, people go out on piers when they shouldn't. They get blown off and bash their heads on rocks and drown. At the beach, Lil wants to play in the monkey bars and swings close to the parking lot. 
I let her do that for 10 minutes or so, then hustle her down toward the water. Lake Michigan, how to explain it. The first time I saw the Atlantic Ocean, I said, it looks like the Great Lakes. People who've never been here don't get it. They pay more attention to the word lakes than the word great, and they picture a reedy, shallow pond. Some of the lakeshore is rocky, but here there's approximately one million yards of white sand from the parking lot to the water. It's beautiful. I could look at it forever. At the shore, Lillian digs in the sand and shrieks when the surf grabs her. By the time she tells me she's hungry, it's dusky and she's soaked through and shivering. I make her stand still and tolerate a brisk brushing off of wet sand, which is mostly fruitless, and we head home. I don't mention her mother to her, but when we get to the house, the lights are on. And when I open the door, there's that warm, ricey smell. I think of May's parents' food as one of the major sensory accompaniments of our marriage. Mama, Lil squeals when the door opens. Noodles. She wriggles out of her wet, sandy pants in the entryway, and I toss them over the porch railing before shutting the door behind us. May comes out of the kitchen, wiping her hands on her jeans. Lil runs to her. Oh, you're so cold, my wife says. Let's get you in the bath. She looks at me. Jeremy, you could put the food in the oven to keep it warm. Every last thing she says to me, I hope to hear encouragement in it. But I'm not supposed to question her coming and going while she, I don't even know what, decides whether to leave for good, I guess. So I wait for her. I sit in our house drinking a beer and warming our dinner while she bathes our kid, and I wait for her. When they come back to the kitchen, Lillian's in a fluffy yellow nightgown that makes her look like a black-capped duckling, and she's flushed and dewy from the bath. We grin at each other as though a warmed-up meal of Chinese food after trips to the doctor and the beach is the most delightful thing, which it is. It's all familiar to her, this house, the food, the beach, Dr. Phillips. What happens when he dies? May and me. Sometimes in my desperation, I forget that if May leaves me for real, it will hurt Lil too. I have this thought that's both comforting and disturbing. If May leaves, I'll feel like killing myself, but I won't do it because I have Lillian. And not killing myself will benefit other people too. My parents and May's parents, I suppose and the people who work for me. But nobody needs me the way Lil does. So without her, I might seriously be tempted to walk into Lake Michigan. We have this small table in our kitchen with one side pushed against the wall. So there's room for just three chairs. A couple of years ago, before Albert was diagnosed, we were thinking of having another kid. But now my focus is on preventing attrition. Three of us seems perfect. May and I are only children too. After May gets the food, she sits and clasps her hands and so does Lillian. I put mine in my lap to wait for them. Dear Lord, my wife starts, thank you for this food. She gives thanks for our health and for God's loving embrace of cousin Albert in heaven. Maybe you could have just left him here, God, I think. This is the kind of thing that makes me impatient with May's new Christian devotion. Albert died and it sucks. And it isn't part of some plan because what a shitty plan that would be. So great job, God. 
taking care of him in heaven. But that would be plan B. Actually, that's plan Z. May wraps it up and Lillian ends with her usual. And thank you, God, for our happy family. Amen. You hear that, May? Our happy family. Amen. Tell mom about Dr. Phillips today, Lil. I'm growing. That's wonderful. I knew you were. Me too, Lillian says. I knew it. I smile and catch May's eye, and I want to wink, but it seems too flirty. She smiles back, though. So dinner is fine and predictable at this point. May and I are courteous, familiar, if not friendly, and Lil chatters and seems thrilled to have us both here. When she gets tired, she reaches for me. May says she'll clean up, and I carry Lil to the bathroom, coax her to brush her teeth, and carry her to bed. I lie down with her on top of the covers, squishing myself against the wall. Fatherhood is this lovely, ordinary thing, and sometimes I feel like I want to sort of rest in it, snuggle up to it, like I'm snuggling Lillian now. I used to feel that way about marriage, too. May and I cannot be said to have exciting lives, but I like to tell her we had an epic love story in ordinary circumstances. It became a thing. One of us would say, epic love story, and the other would answer, ordinary circumstances. It was one of the first things I said to her after Lillian was born. When I wake up, my arm is violently asleep, still pressed to the wall. I sit and scoot to the end of Lil's bed and lift my dad arm into my lap with my other arm. Lying in the second twin bed, perpendicular to Lillian's, is my wife. This is the first time in months we've slept in the same room. I can make out the contrast of her black hair on the white pillow, so I stare at that. What will she say if she wakes? My arm is prickling back to life, and I wonder how long I'd have to cut off the circulation to do real damage. Probably a long time. But it's weird and scary, all the easy ways to injure yourself. Cuts and burns, stopping blood flow, falling off the pier, getting cancer, walking into the lake. It's maybe creepy, staring at May, and the fact that looking at my wife might be creepy starts to piss me off, which is dangerous. When I get angry, she seems further away. I don't want to be creepy, so I get up and head to the bathroom, where the clock says 3.33. I consider all kinds of crazy things for the middle of the night. Taking a walk, making coffee, looking at my phone for no good reason. I should go back to sleep, but I decide to take a shower first. It's a comfortable place to cry and not as lonely as our bed. In the morning, real morning, not 3 a.m., Lil wakes me up. Get up, you milk toast. She's leaning on my chest in her yellow nightgown, a cheerful morning duck. Mom's making breakfast. I can smell it. I pull on some pants. It seems, I don't know, presumptuous, to walk around in my underwear in front of May. There's coffee and scrambled eggs and pancakes made by my wife here in our house. Ordinary circumstances. She's showered and dressed. She keeps some clothes in Lil's closet. Sometimes I go in there and look at them. There are clothes in our bedroom closet still too, 
but I guess those she's abandoned. After breakfast, Lil scampers off, and May and I sit at the table with our coffee cups, not looking at each other. I swear I start to blush. My face and neck get hot, and I put my coffee down, and May says, I talked to Julie yesterday. Julie is her cousin, Albert's mom. They want to have a little service, like a celebration of life. Today is September 30th. Albert died October 7th last year. This year he would have been a sixth grader. I thought a celebration of life was a funeral. I don't know, something then, a ritual. And just like that, we're both irritated. The way we've been with each other over this almost year has evolved or devolved. First, there was a lot of careful discussion about religion and why May didn't always stay here. And then a lulled period of painstaking courtesy. And now that is changing to include flares of frustration. Maybe where we're headed next is open hostility. Something with the family, an observance, just to say we still love him and that we're okay and he's okay. She says this like a challenge, but the truth is I don't think Albert's not okay. Death isn't the worst thing. I just don't think he's anything anymore. I can't help it. I can't talk myself into belief. Also, Julie's pregnant. Wow, right? I hope May is thinking about what I'm thinking about. Julie and Carl having sex. Not in a gross way, but the fact of it. Albert's parents had sex, and we're just Albert's mom's cousin and her husband. I wish May and I were a comfort to each other, and it hits me that if she still loved me, it would be too hard for her to stay away. She would feel electrocuted the way I do. Or maybe not. If she didn't love me, she would get the hell out of here. Millions of times I thought, I can't stand this any longer. And then I stand it some more. Will you come to Albert's whatever? Of course. I should go. I told my parents I'd help with lunch. I'll clean up. I want to come get Lillian later. I nod. And she's off. May and I met 11 years ago. She's four years younger, so we were never in high school together. And then I went to college, and she cooked at the restaurant and did the dental hygiene thing at the community college. This is a small city, but there was no reason for us to be in each other's orbit until her car started making a weird knocking sound. I got a BA in philosophy, but I also know about cars. So I came back here and worked with my dad and got certified. And a few years after that, we started phasing him out so I could take over his shop. I'm not a big guy, but I've been told I'm good looking, baldness and all. And I think I cut some kind of figure for May when she came in panicked about her car. She probably expected an older fat guy. She probably expected my dad. But it was me who came out from the back, breathless and holding a wrench. You know, it's a type. She noticed. And I noticed. May is a small woman, but she has a steeliness too. That day her eyes were kind of wild and she looked so serious. It was the seriousness I noted first. There was a second of recognition between us with sex bound up in it, then a second of embarrassment. And then I asked what I could do for her. 
That was the start of our epic love story. The knocking turned out to be the end of her engine, and I helped her sell the car for parts and pick out a new car. To say thank you, she opened the restaurant one Sunday evening when they were normally closed. She cooked for me, no one else there, and later I went home with her to this apartment she had over top of a storefront downtown. For a year, we went to the beach in all seasons and ate Chinese food and had a lot of sex. And then I asked her father for her hand. I felt weird about it. Like, can't she make her own decisions? But he loved it. He was so excited, I feared he'd tell her before I could. So I went right to her apartment. And when she opened the door, I said, marry me. We raced to her bedroom, and only after did I remember the ring. She still wears it, and her wedding ring too, but they seem incidental. This can't be all about God and Albert, though I might never know. If she finds her way back to me, I will swallow my, I will swallow my curiosity. I will swallow it every day, like some huge dry pill. Albert's funeral was at the beach on a cold, sunny day. It was windy and the minister had this crummy wireless microphone. Lillian wore her winter coat and hat and halfway through she climbed into my lap. She put her lips to my ear and asked, what is he saying? I moved my lips to her ear. He's saying we all loved Albert very much. She laid her cheek on my shoulder, then lifted her head again. What else? I didn't know. There was wind and a drone of word-like sounds, and from some yards away, the surf, which didn't help. But before I could come up with a gentle and believable answer, Will said, Mommy's crying. I looked at my wife. She had a handkerchief over her nose and mouth, pinned there with a gloved hand, and her torso bobbed in an odd way that took me a second to recognize as sobbing. Her parents were on one side of her, and Lillian and I on the other but there was something contained in private about her grief that I was both afraid to disturb and afraid to let her get lost in. It seemed, honestly, and as sad as the situation was, out of all proportion. Holding Lil, I moved into her chair and let my shoulder touch May's. Lil put her hand out and I eased her into May's lap where she stayed only a few seconds before climbing back into mine. She tucked herself into my chest and I pressed my shoulder against my wife. For the rest of the service, I felt her sobs. She didn't look at us until it was done when she managed a tiny smile for Lil. She took her hand and we walked from the beach to our car with the other mourners, the minister and Julie and Carl in the lead, then their parents, then the rest of us in heads down procession. To the cars, to the cemetery, in the blinding cold and chilling sun. That was how it felt, sensory information muddled, to drop Albert's cremains in a hole. Cremains. The minister actually said that when we were gathered at the gravesite. I saw a crematorium once in Spokane, Washington. It was in a neighborhood, not a great neighborhood, but an okay one. You could see the wavy exhaust coming out the top of the building. Imagine looking at that every day. After a body is cremated, they have to pulverize the bones. I hadn't known that. So their son's bones were pulverized, 
and Julie and Carl managed to have sex at least once these past months. But they must have a sense they're walking through the same fire. May feels like she's on her own. She's left me here at our kitchen table, but invited me to Albert's thing. And I'll see her later because she wants to get Lil. All these increments of encouragement and discouragement. I can't stand them. And then I do. I get up to stick my hat in Lil's doorway and she and May are on the floor, my wife brushing my daughter's hair. They don't register my presence, so I leave them to it. I'm back in the kitchen when I hear the front door shut and Lil races in, her hair in a neat braid that won't last to announce, mom says we'll go to the beach later. Such an indeterminate pronoun, we. And then maybe you can help grandpa whack down that old tree. She means cut down dead branch hanging over the roof at May's parents' house. First relief, then jubilation, then anger in super fast succession. Jesus Christ, May, talk to me. She meets us at the beach after lunch and we sit on the sand with our arms around our knees. Our bodies don't touch, but our body heat does, like we're in each other's atmosphere. Lillian's running around in and out of the water, on her knees and back up and scooping sand into her pail and dumping it. Albert's service, May says. It'll be next Saturday. I nod. At the gravesite. People will say a few prayers and maybe we'll have a song and she lifts her hands and clasps her knees again. Then we'll get ice cream. She turns to me. Do you want to come? Yes, yes, I do. It will be religious. I understand. Lil waves to us and we wave back and watch her take a running leap at a mound of sand. How far along is Julie, I ask. Three months. Wow. She said they planned it even. Good for them. I don't believe God took Albert. I don't know if you think I do. I look at her, but she stares straight ahead. This could be an opening or a shutting down. May, I, I don't know. I guess I did. I don't believe that. Tell me then what you do believe. She looks at me. I hold my breath and into the space she's open. I'll choose to believe it's an opening. I say, I love you. I know. Then she dips her head and I can't see, but I sense her tears. I leave her alone with them for a minute and I say, May, tell me. I'm afraid it sounds like, tell me I love you, a command. But she understands me and says, I don't think God makes bad things happen, but that he's there when they do. Do you remember what the minister said at the funeral? How did she decipher a word of it? about how God meets us in our sorrow and rests with us there. It's very pretty and I can see the appeal. That's what I believe. I'd hoped you would hear it and understand like it might be more convincing from someone else. I'm sorry, he was difficult to hear. It sounds so lame and what I want to say is that I wish she would let me meet her in her sorrow and rest with her there. I would hold her forever. May, I am sorry, I say. 
and she's watching our daughter and the lake beyond. The night before Albert's thing, May comes over and we make lasagna. We told Lillian about the service. I explained that we would get together with cousin Julie and Carl and everybody to say goodbye to Albert once more, to which she responded, but we already did that. So May said that it would make Julie and Carl feel not so sad to have the family all come to where Albert was buried and say they love him and thank God for taking care of him now, since it had been one year. And that seemed to make more sense to Lil. The lasagna is autumnal and sort of festive and we'll have ice cream after the service tomorrow. And we ate pierogies after Albert's funeral. And is there any starker display of mortality than all this fueling? We are so inefficient and weak. I wake in the middle of the night and get up to walk past Lillian's room. May is not there. The bathroom is empty and I open the door to the garage and see her car is still parked. She's not in the kitchen. And when I go by the living room, she says, Jeremy. I back up and stop. She's in the chair by the far corner window. I can't sleep, she says. Can I get you anything? No. I'm in just my underpants. There's only a bit of moon filtered through a big spruce tree, but I feel lit up. Can I? I start to say again, what? Can I get us some wine? Can I rub her feet? Can I hold her? Julie's upset with me. I can't move. I don't want to spook her. She's upset? Why? I didn't act happy enough when she told me she was pregnant, but I'd been thinking about Albert's anniversary. I was shocked. I started crying. Oh, May. Our moms were there and I pulled it together, but yesterday she told me, she actually said this, that she's been handling Albert's death better than I have and I should see a therapist. Jeremy, my name again, Happy Jolt. Do you think I should? Do you want to? Would it help you? How do I know? Our insurance covers it. I say this for two reasons to tell her she can try it and we'll be out only the copay, and to emphasize that the insurance is ours because we're married, like the house is ours and Lillian is ours. It's calculated, but not insincere. She also said that I'm treating you badly. There's no correct response to this, and I exhale. I'm sorry, she says. May. And I'm jealous. That is the truth. I am jealous of Julie, her lo who lost her first child. What is the matter with me? There's no wailing when she says this. It is still just her solemn voice from the dark corner. She gets up and comes toward me, and in hopeful confusion, I put my hand out. I'm cold and I have to pee, but she seems unfazed that I'm nearly naked. I should go to bed. She looks at me and my hand drifts down. Jeremy. I'm sorry. In the morning, I feel wrecked. I think May does too. When my eye catches hers, my heart, already skittery from coffee and lack of sleep, goes galloping off. After breakfast, I claim a headache and get back in bed. May comes out of the bathroom in a navy blue dress she knows I love, but I only glance at her in the doorway of our daughter's room. Come on, Lil, 
Don't bunch up your toes. It's a cold, drizzly day. It rained all morning and could start again. At the cemetery, I imagine May's people making their appraisals. We came together. We're holding Lil's hands. We look like a family today. Her parents have been polite and gentle this past year, and they don't look at me anymore so much as peer and squint, like they're looking for something. Who knows what May tells them? The dopey minister is here, and so is that woman Julia got mixed up with when Albert was in the hospital, the Christian witch doctor. I know it's her. She's got that earth mother of the universe look, flowy purple dress, salt and pepper braid winding her head, and a gigantic brass cross around her neck. The chain takes a steep dive off her bosom, and the cross thwaps her stomach as she walks toward us. Thwap, thwap, thwap. May, here you are with your lovely family. The Earth Mother takes both of May's hands, and Lil turns toward me. This must be Lillian. I hoist Lil up, and she regards the woman from her perch on my hip. And Jeremy, it's wonderful to meet you. Nice to meet you. This is Margaret, May says. Lillian turns in my arms and whispers, you're a Weisenheimer. Shh, I say and pat her back. I've prayed with Julian Carl, Margaret says. She looks at me. I used to be a nun. That's interesting. Actually, it kind of is. Back to May. They're holding up, but how are you, dear? Should we take a moment? May says yes and looks at me, and I nod. I can handle her family without her. Lillian and I make the rounds. She hugs her grandparents, and they peer and squint at me. May's dad shakes my head and claps my shoulder. Her mom hugs me and says, Oh, Jeremy, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad. We say hi to cousins and friends, and I keep an eye on May and Margaret, off under a tree, heads bowed. I also keep an eye on Julie and Carl. Good old Julie, my defender. She's not looking very pregnant yet but she rests a hand above her belly. They're standing by the gravestone. I feel shy about approaching them, but I do it. Lil gives them hugs and we all look down. It's hard not to. Albert Yuan Bartelski, 2006 to 2016. Beloved son and grandson, nephew, cousin, and friend. The minister inserts himself and Lil and I step away. Where's Albert, she asks. Lillian, honey, you know this. I suppress a flare of irritation. Albert's not here. He died. She looks around. I know. May joins us, and I see the minister and Margaret conferring with Julie and Carl. I wish Dr. Phillips were here, and Albert's oncologist from Grand Rapids. Why wasn't Margaret at the funeral, I ask May. She had another funeral for her aunt. You didn't tell me she was a nun. Yes, I did. The minister raises his hand and people stop talking and gather around Julie and Carl. Margaret and the minister stand behind the gravestone and the rest of us face them. Friends, the minister starts. He wears a regular suit and tie and a big white sash over his shoulders. We are here to remember the life of Albert Yuan Bartelski. 
He clears his throat. Let us pray. He clears his throat again. Our Father, he says, and people chime in. I look down at Lil. She's studying an insect on her shoe. I take her hand. On the other side of her, May has closed her eyes and crossed her arms, and she leans so far forward, I'm afraid she'll crash into Carl. But the prayer ends, and she stands up straight and takes Lillian's other hand. Margaret leads us in the 23rd Psalm, the one about the valley of the shadow of death. Then there's a mumbling verse of what a friend we have in Jesus. 15 or so people, acapella. There are more prayers, and I wonder what it would be like to put my arm around my wife, meet her in her sorrow, and rest with her there. Everyone would notice. The minister finishes by holding up his palm. May the Lord bless you and keep you. It's like a tiny church service. It's fine. It's what I expected. Afterward, there's some milling about and hugging and crying but it's cold and I want a cup of coffee. Lil and I wait for May, who's talking to Julie. Maybe they're making up. Maybe Julie's talking about me. Margaret startles me while I watch my wife. And in her face, I can see what my face must betray because she doesn't say anything at first. Just gives me a sad, closed-lipped smile. Jeremy, she says. Hello. I asked May if I might talk to you. Okay. My heart starts going. I know things have been difficult. She looks at Lillian. Lil, go hang out with Grandma for a few minutes. I point her toward May's mom, and she trots over. I look at Margaret. Who is this woman? Jeremy, I realize I might be overstepping, but I want to tell you I believe May is trying. We don't know sometimes why we have the emotional responses we do. It can be a real mystery. Her speech sounds rehearsed, and when I don't answer, she carries on. And just like you are a mechanic who diagnoses the problems people have with their cars, I like to think of myself as a mechanic of the human spirit. She throws up her hands. But before you roll your eyes, I'd already started. Before you roll your eyes, I'll tell you that sometimes I can't figure it out. I just keep looking at her. I can't explain everything going on with May, but I know she's hurting. No shit. I didn't tell her what I was going to say to you, but I think that part of what's fueling this standoff in your marriage is that she's so deep in she doesn't know how to stop. I want to hate Margaret and stalk off, but I am riveted. It should be easy, I say, but I know it's not true. I don't think so. What should I do? I ask this to challenge her and, honestly, to see if she might know. She shakes her head. There is no real answer. All I can tell you is that it seems this isn't necessarily the end. I would like to respond that her hedging is small comfort but the truth, it is, the truth is it is something. So I ask Margaret, the stranger, does May want another baby? She turns away and puts her hands on her hips. So I explain to her profile. She said she is jealous of Julie. 
Margaret is quiet for countable seconds. I count them and make it to seven before she says, children cannot save you, and looks back at me. I know, but even if this is not the answer, it might still happen to be true. And implied is that May wants another kid with me, right? The question is not so simple. Define want. Margaret is irritated, but I don't care. I suppose the answer is yes and no, or yes and wait. Do you understand me? It's something I say to Lillian. Do not touch the stove when people are cooking. Do you understand me? We stare at each other. Jeremy, my point is not that this is irrelevant, but I advise a great deal of patience. How many more years of patience, Margaret? I look over her shoulder at May and Margaret turns around and looks too. Thank you, I say. She turns back to me. After a pause, she says, you're welcome. But I mean it, this is not some easy answer. I understand. She sighs and takes my hands. I wish you peace. Thanks. She squeezes and lets my hands go and gives me a nod that is almost a bow. Then she turns and walks away and I am left with this hopeful scrap of corroboration, but it is no answer and will not be easy. I find May's parents and ask them to take Lillian to the ice cream place. I let May drift my way. Will's going with your folks, I tell her, and she raises her eyebrows but says okay. We walk to the car and get in, and she is silent when I veer from the ice cream route and end up at the, end up at the beach. Since, the, since it's the only useful bit of intel I've had in a year, I come right out and ask my wife, do you want another kid? I don't expect her to answer immediately, but she does. It's a strange thing to want right now, I realize. My heart reasserts itself. It is not fast or so much as bigger, too big. The lake is huge before us, gray with white caps and disappearing on one side into nearby cliffs and on the other into faraway ones and in front of us into the horizon. Some people need mountains, some people need prairies, some people need cities, and I need this lake. Did Margaret tell you that, May asks? You did, May. Last night, you said you were jealous of Julie. That isn't all I meant. Tell me. And my point was I feel guilty about it, Jeremy. But can't you support Julie and also be happy? I lower my voice. We could have another baby. She shakes her head. Please, can we not do this now? People will wonder where we are. I want you, I say, and it is a sound like help or water. May doesn't look at me when she says, I am jealous of Julie because she has her marriage and because Carl believes in God. And yes, now she is pregnant again and I am jealous of that too. There's only our breath and the waves soughing, muted by the car. And there is also my heart. I want to go, she says. We're supposed to be having ice cream. But tell me why it's so terrible that I don't believe what you believe. You know that's not all it is. You're disdainful. 
I embarrass you. No. Yes, I really think so. Now she looks at me, so serious, and it might be that my life is over. I remind myself I have Lillian to keep me from walking into Lake Michigan. I am sorry, I say. I don't know what to do. She turns away. What did Margaret tell you? Nothing, just that I should be patient, and this is not, not necessarily the end. Hmm, she says. It's not even a word. It could mean anything. I don't know if it's good or bad that she talked to you. How did you and Julie meet her anyway? I'm grasping and I can hear the shrill echo of my voice. May inhales. I honestly think I explained this. She was a hospital chaplain, which means she drove here this morning from Grand Rapids. That was nice of her. It was, more than two hours each way. May, I say, gently, gently. What do we do? I look at her and she's looking out the windshield. What do we do? I whisper it this time. Sometimes wanting something is inconvenient, Jeremy. Another baby. She stops and sighs, and I want to say, I love you. I want to say, epic love story. This is not necessarily the end. Be patient, patient. I lean toward my wife and touch my mouth to her shoulder, not a kiss. She doesn't flinch, and when I, when I straighten up, she sighs again, which could be nothing. It could just be her breathing. The end. Ooh. Ooh, what a great read, Hadley. Mm -hmm. Very good read. How do you feel? Thank you. I feel good. Um, I think Ernie did make himself known a few times. He sure did. He did. <laughs> Yeah. And that's fine. Okay. Yeah, that's okay though. I liked I could hear him a little bit and I was like, oh, that's just a nice little sound effect there in the back. Yeah. Yep. Um before we let you go, uh, so that we can talk behind your back while you're in the green room, uh, Mark, can you pull up some of the things that the lovely things people said? For oh yeah, we had um, Christine is list. Christine Seed is Christine. <laughs> and um, I don't I don't know how to pronounce the name. I don't want to. Obsidian, Obsidian. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then Maureen oh, says, Maureen. "Wow, great reading and great story. Real life is intense. It sure is." <laughs> Oh, Christine, hello. We hello. missed you. Hi, Christine. So we lovely. We talk about to you so her. much. You have to submit again. We miss you. <laughs> yes. Um, all right, Hadley. Well, uh, we're going to take you out for a minute. And Jeremy, make sure and I, you come back, though. Yeah. Yes. We have questions don't, for you. Don't Good. go away. And we will have Hadley right back in just a few minutes. Um, Oh, Megan, this one is hardcore. Oh, it's so good. Oh. Oh. I think um, I enjoyed her reading so much. Like, I think I this is one of the stories that, like, I really enjoy. I mean, I enjoyed listening to all of them, but yeah. in thinking about 
I should start the clock before we start. You talking. sure should, because <laughs> we talk too much. I'm gonna like keep talking a lot. Um, like thinking about the the experience of reading the story the first time, and then the experience of listening to it. I just felt like I was. It wasn't necessarily like a better experience, but I I felt like it more in my body and in my in my being to be able to hear it written out, um, read out loud. It was a little bit more hopeful, like having her read it. Like I was kind of feeling claustrophobic, like being in his perspective when I first read the piece. Yeah, yeah. It's a little bit more hopeful, mm -hmm. but at the same time, I don't know. Don't like know. I just want to like, know. know what's gonna, I know. I'm... I know this is awful, but I am gonna ask Hadley. Hadley, be prepared. <laughs> I'm gonna ask you what happens after this story. I need to know. You don't have to tell me, but I'm gonna ask. Yeah, but um, I but I think that's part of the beauty of the story is that Jeremy doesn't know. You know, Jeremy's uh, trapped in this purgatory. And, no, like May doesn't know. Like and May doesn't know either. Yeah, like nobody really knows nobody in the story knows how it's going to play out for them this reminds me of a piece i was just not old enough at the time to watch it but like i got really involved in this piece i don't remember the title of the movie it was with bruce willis and michelle pfeiffer and it's like their their relationship is rocky i think they might get a divorce or they might not and I was just so involved in their life that I was oh, like, I don't want to know. I just want to hope that they get together and I just stop the movie. <laughs> right? Like, I I understand that impetus. It's like, it's so, it, it's almost unbearable. I mean, it is unbearable. And that's part of the story. Like, that's, that's what, part of what the story is telling us is like, to be in that state of not knowing is, is unbearable. You can only, you can only sustain that for so long. And, so much to the point that when we're invested in these relationships, we if we don't have to be a part of it, we don't want to, we can just turn that movie off. We can put yeah. that book down. But yeah. you know, when it's your own life, you oh, man. And you can't walk away from it. I think Hadley did a brilliant job with like, she has two religious beliefs and like she was really respectful to both beliefs. Like she was respectful mm -hmm. to Jeremy's and she's also respectful to May's. And it's not that one is better than the other. It's just, it's almost like they're balancing each other out, kind of like May and Jeremy are balancing each other out too, like trying to find something to connect to and con right. continue onward with. Yeah. I just really like that symbol. And oh, also the part, it, it hit me when I read it, but it hit me extra hard having Hadley read it. The moment where May is talking to Julie. Oh. You always jump, Megan. Always uh, jump. But the, Finish your thought though. Yeah, when Julie says, you're mourning my son more than I am, you should mm -hmm. see someone. I'm like, I, I felt so many different feelings. Like first I was like, how dare you? And then I'm like, well, I understand her perspective, but man, like nobody has like a monopoly on grief. Like it was just one of those things where you also don't know what to do with your feelings because you can't right. dislike someone. That's one of the uncomfortable things. All yeah. right, done talking. Okay, so um, before we bring Hadley in, uh, let me tell you a few of uh, the wonderful things that she's been up to. So Hadley Moore's collection, Not Dead Yet and Other Stories, was published in 2019. 
Um, and won Autumn House Press's 2018 Fiction Contest and uh, has received many other awards. The story that we read tonight, Ordinary Circumstances, appears in that collection, but was first published in McSweeney's Quarterly Concern. Her work has also appeared in Witness, the Alaska Quarterly Review, the Indiana Review, and numerous other literary journals. And she is an alum of the MFA program for writers at Warren Wilson College. Uh, let's bring Hadley on, back on. <laughs> I hope she got some water and rested her mouth a little bit before, <laughs> after that long read. Yes. You did a great job. <laughs> yeah, that was a great read, Hadley. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, that was really good. I really love to have the authors read their work. You know, I, I think it is just something really special that the author can bring to a work. Um, so I, I really appreciate that that you you took up that that charge and, and and read it yourself. So thank you. Yeah, good. Yeah. So Hadley, can you tell us a little bit about what was the inspiration for this story or what kind of like Well, the impetus was I heard an acquaintance say that her kids liked going to the doctor. And that was like this, you know, funny story. So um I I find that you never know what will inspire a story. And so, you know, I'm trying to kind of pay attention all the time. And so from that, I, I kind of started thinking, okay, what kind of kid would that be? You know? Um, and so I kind of started out with the character of Lillian and then it's like, okay, so what, what situation is Lillian in? This is a small kid. And then from there, the story kind of um, unspooled um, as they often do for me, like it starts with kind of a seed, something that feels sort of resonant and interesting to me. Um, and then it kind of, it kind of goes from there where I, um, conceived of this situation with, um, this, you know, her cousin, this child who had died and how that is affecting her parents mm -hmm. and what is the conflict between their parents. And then, um, you know, what, what else happens in the, what else happens in the story? How does how does something change for them, um, you know, or not? And and then the character, the sort of catalyst character of of Margaret, mm -hmm. um, coming in, coming in toward the end. H Hadley, did you, oh, oh, go for it, Megan. Okay. Um, did you always have the story from Jeremy's perspective, or was it from Lillian's in the beginning? No, it was from, it was from Jeremy's. I um, there was there's one instance in, in which I wrote from a child's perspective that has you know certainly its own challenges mm. um but even though that even though this story idea started with a character of Lillian it it always kind of seemed like it was in Jeremy's voice mm. um and he was my he was my um you know point of view character to begin with sometimes you can go back and, and reverse engineer um you know why but if i'm feeling like this is the character whose story it is this is his voice i will kind of just feel that out mm -hmm. for a while um yeah. to see if it's right and i and i kept that that choice yeah yeah i love that uh hadley i was gonna say when you were talking about the seed like that's how i think about writing too like the kernel like you know mm -hmm. it grows but what i think is amazing and it kind of made me nervous when you were talking is when you see your seed it's it's such a small sliver like from that small sliver, I would not have gotten your story, you know? So you have to be, you as the author have to be so trusting 
to know that that is going to turn into something larger like this story. Like, um, do you have any moments where you're working on a story and it just stops or do you always find your way with it? Does it always sprout into something? Um, I mean, you know, there's ideas I've abandoned because yeah. <laughs> okay. they don't turn into anything. Yeah. Um, but my process is pretty stop and start. Um, I write slowly and I think that like by the time I end up with one draft, it's really kind of a, a second draft rather than a first draft because mm. I do a lot of write and revise and write and revise. Um, and I basically my process is to just sort of draft as long as I can find my thread. Oh, that's great. I like how you said that. Find my thread. That's good. And then when I lose, when I lose it, which which happens, yeah, you know, then I have to stop and kind of wool gather. Like I have um, a dedicated notebook where I'm where I mean, like literally, if you read it, it's very boring. It's like what should happen next? <laughs> Here we are. Which character comes in? Where you know? It's it's really basic stuff. But through that process, I kind of I will kind of stir up what should come next in the story. Yeah. I, I love that. It's almost like yeah. you, you jot down the things that you know should come next. And then it's like a reference. Does it, does it feel like a reference? So if you get stuck, you can go back to that. Like, is that. Yeah. And yeah. And I, one thing I did notice um, is that I thought sometimes I was using that, like, I mean, I'm talking about longhand, like writing. Yeah. I, I draft on a on my computer, but like I write my sort of figuring out notes um, mm -hmm. in a paper notebook. Mm -hmm. um, that can be used as a little bit of a stalling tactic, though, too. <laughs> so um, sometimes I do kind of cut myself off and say, "Okay, I know this is scary, but it's time to get back to the manuscript itself because you actually have a usable idea here." So. <laughs> Close it up and let's go. I love that like other writers are crafty like that, that they're creative enough to screw themselves up that way too, oh. where that's cool though that you call yourself out. Good for you. <laughs> that's why Hadley has an anthology, you all. Oh, that's right, yeah. Um, one, of my, one of my favorite moments in this story is when Jeremy's talking about these dual Jeremy's that that are existing. And I feel like there's a lot of duality and conflicting points of view throughout this entire story. And I just love when he talks about the dual Jeremy's and like one person is getting on while the other is screaming. And I feel like in moments in our lives are that are of high stress and tension where there's no immediate resolution, that is such a, such a spot on adequate way of describing. And when I first read this story, I was uh, at home taking care of my parents who were ill and in that space. And when I read the story, it gave me such relief because I was like, yes, this is this is what I'm feeling now. I'm feeling like half of me is getting on and the other half is screaming. And it was it was such a like relief to read that moment and, and feel that and have that connection with Jeremy. Um, do you feel like like that duality that's that is a theme within your story and like um something that you purposefully worked into it or is it just something that kind of came into the story i can kind of remember hitting upon that line and you know what it reminds me of and now i can't remember if the quote is from emerson or thoreau but the um the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation mm. and i think 
that, you know, a lot of people are doing that a lot of the time. You, you can't see it, you know, most of the time um, as people go about go about their lives. But I think that's definitely at play with him. And he, you know, he reflects that it's probably at play with um, Albert's parents um, as well, that there's just, there's a lot more, a lot more complicated going on with everyone all the time than, than what yeah. you can see. Yeah. And so when I hit upon that line, I thought, I think this is pretty essential um, to this character's experience and to, and to the story that anything is more complicated um, than it seems. And even though you're not in May's point of view or anyone else's point of view, that, you know, I think that probably applies to what she's going through as well. I think that's what makes this story so captivating is that it feels like real life. You know, um, some some writers, like they write extremely one way where it's one-sided to, to follow the protagonist. But this, I really appreciated that, like you saw all the characters, even Margaret, where I'm like, oh, I want to dislike you, Margaret. But I didn't quite dislike her because she's a human being with the duality and stuff. I thought you just did a great job capturing Thanks. different personas. Yeah, yeah. And it, and it hits so well with the title of Ordinary Circumstances and this, mm -hmm. oh, this yeah. call and response that Jeremy and his wife have with the epic love story, Ordinary Circumstances. I love that bit. And it and it does, it's like everybody that you encounter in this story is kind of going through that that duality of, of, of living very intense emotions. Like I feel like even Lillian, as small and, and, and childish she is, she's living life in these like you know she's feeling a lot of life and it's and it's ordinary but it's also extreme it's and epic like it's that's epic. what's crazy yeah. is that the ordinary circumstances are epic are you know epic. i mean yeah. and if you think about it in real life everyone is going through something that is ridiculous you know it's an ordinary circumstance but if you were to put it in a story it would seem epic right it's just so weird i think you just did a great job um i haven't read any of your other work hadley and i'm just curious is this something that you you do a lot the duality or um yeah so the book in which this story appears um is called not dead yet that's that's the title of one of of one of the stories in it but um there's a lot having to do with loss of various um of various types um some deaths some other some other kinds of things there's also the, although this story isn't funny there's also a lot of kind of dark gallows humor um type yeah. stuff throughout the book and so i do i do really like to look at um you know multiple multiple sides of things that as yeah. as you were talking i was listening to um you know the idea that one of these characters has one perspective on the religion and the the other has another and and it's not presented as one of them is wrong or or bad um and i, th I think that's important yeah, absolutely um, to present absolutely. all to present all those perspectives and also to have um compassion mm. for all of the characters and this is the kind of story where it's not there's not it's not good guys and bad guys there's not a mm. hero and right. a villain um but these are these are all characters that have multiple multiple sides the multiple things are they're um they're worried about and so yeah i think it is important to have compassion mm. compassion oh absolutely yeah, yeah. And, I, and i feel that so much throughout the story like even though we don't 
even though it is all from Jeremy's perspective. And I, I feel like I know the characters, the other characters so well with what little that you give us. It's like, I never feel like I'm judging them. I, I just feel yeah. like, you know, I have this extreme compassion for them. And I was like, oh, you know, I, I just keep like, you know, throughout the story, I must have gone, oh, so many times like this, just with this sense of empathy for these people and the the circumstances that they're going through. And even the, even people like the cousin and they've lost their child and these characters, we don't really spend that much time with. You still, you still mm -hmm. feel for them and are feel connected to them. Yeah. Yeah. And the comp like the complications of, okay, the, the central, um, conflict is between two people in a relationship, but there's all this other stuff going on. They have, to, they have to parent, they, um, you know, there's this intense situation with the extended family and this, and this mm -hmm. child who's died at a young age and, and so forth. And that's, that's usually what we're doing. We can't just focus on the main thing or the one thing. They all blur together. Yeah. Like they all, they all, and they connect too. Like they all weirdly connect and take turns yeah. like doing a weird waltz stance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Was was there a part of this story that was particularly hard for you to write, or you found difficult to uh, shape in the way that you wanted? Um, you know, the process is it's always hard in in different ways. In this instance, I drafted fairly quickly, um, especially for me since I'm since I'm kind of slow. And then it took a while to figure out how to revise it to its end. Oh. Um, and that can be super frustrating, but I have learned um, that it's all right to set it aside maybe multiple times. Um, and that even though that is inefficient and iterative and frustrating, that ultimately that's probably better for the work. And that's what happened with this one. I felt sort of encouraged at first, like, oh, this is going so smoothly, but then it wasn't. <laughs> It wasn't really done for a while and for a few, um, ep not until after a few tries. Mm. So. Do you, yeah. Hadley, do you juggle? Like, do you juggle multiple works? Yeah, I do. Yeah. And the reason for that is is that I like to set things aside. And sometimes it is a long time between drafts. Um, like, I just really like to let stuff get stone cold. Mm. Um, I just think it's so much, it's so much fresher to look at something you haven't looked at in months. So yeah, I usually have more than one thing going on so I can toggle That's great. between them. And your subconscious is doing work. It's not really like you're just I putting so. it aside. Like, like you magically have answers, right? Sometimes when you look at it, like I, I, I just truly believe your subconscious is working for you when you do stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, That's, yeah I love that. So Hadley, do you know what happens to these characters after this? <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. It's funny. I was, as I was listening to you say that, I was in, um, I was doing a class visit uh, to an, uh, with an undergraduate um, creative writing class last month, and someone asked me the same question about a different story. Oh. And I said, I really hope that you don't think I'm being a smartass, but I don't know, like, because what I know about, Just like, that, truly, that. what I know about the story is what any reader knows about the story. Um, if I were gonna pick this back up and write another story about these characters, then I would have to figure it out. But that sort of uncertain, you know, but little bit of hopeful maybe um, 
information that we have at the end. That's really, that's really all I know. I don't have a, like a secret, you know, that I can tell you that like where they are in a year or anything. That's actually a great answer know. though, that you don't know. I like that. Oh, I like man. that the author doesn't know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love that. And I feel that in the in the ending. And I think that's why the ending is so satisfying to me is is because I feel like that's your intention as the author is to leave us with that feeling of, yeah, well, we're not sure. And maybe these characters, you know, these characters don't even know and the author doesn't know. And this is but yeah. this is like the end and we don't know where it's going to go. And oh. And I just love, I just love that she can't even verbalize, you know, it's just a, huh, you know, it's, it's true to life, you know, like she can't even come up with the words for. Yeah. I mean, how many times have you been in that? I'm just thinking about myself, I guess. How many times have I been in that situation where I, I like, I'm in an intense moment and it's like my brain just fries and I don't even know what to say. I don't even know how to verbalize something and I just end up making sounds. And it's it's <laughs> always afterward that you have the brilliant thing to say, but in the moment, yeah, it's we're like just stumbling. Your words are yeah. stolen from you and that's all you can say. And it's very frustrating for the person receiving that because then they're like, what, you don't have anything to say? And it's, right. you know, but that is part of the experience. Speaking of receiving, Hadley, like when you finished this, was there something that you got from writing this story that you didn't have before you started, like a truth or a mm. feeling? Um, you know, I guess I, I'm, I still have to go back to process. Like, I feel like every story kind of teaches me something. And, and, you know, I, this isn't always true, but I, gives me some confidence that I can like write another story, <laughs> even though um, I love that. that's so good. Yeah. They can be so different, you know, one to another, um, not only in content, but in, in process. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the fact, like I was saying that I had some trouble, some trouble revising it and I, you know, I can look at it now and, and see it as, you know, something that is truly finished. Um, and I, I refer as I'm, as I'm drafting new work now, I refer to old work for its, for its lessons. Like, you know, sometimes it's like, remember you, you have done this before. <laughs> it's possible <laughs> to finish the story in front of me because you've done it. Um, but then also sometimes like, I can't quite remember what I was after recently, but I went back looking at my own work for other instances of catalyst characters and how they have appeared and what they do and so forth. And this is an instance of that where Margaret kind of comes in near the end mm -hmm. um, and changes the dynamics. Um, mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I love that. Yeah. Well, uh, Hadley, mm -hmm. is there anything else that you'd like to say or anything that you'd like our listeners to know about the story or? Mm -hmm. No, just thanks. This was fun. I like to talk about, you know, reading and writing and um, maybe next time it'll be a shorter story, but. <laughs> next time, that means she's submitting right. again, Megan. Did you hear that? Yeah, well, we would love to. We would love to showcase another one of your stories on the show. Thanks. And thank you so much for uh, reading this story, for submitting to us and reading the story. And thank you for this lovely conversation. It's We love talking to other writers about their process yeah. and how mm -hmm. their stories go and and uh you know just 
it's it's always it's always fun and inspiring and and helpful when you hear that right other writers do the same things you do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yep. that you're not yep. alone. Yeah, yep, that our yeah. struggles are common. Yes. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you, thank you so much, Hadley, and uh, to all of our listeners out there. If you want to read some more of Hadley's work, please check out her book, Not Dead Yet, and other stories. You can find that on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And her website is hadleymore.net. So make sure that you check out and get her book ASAP. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Thank thanks you, so Hadley. much, Hadley. Good night. Bye. Well, another good story, another good read. That was so good. Uh, I love that. Yeah, it was so interesting to hear about Hadley's process too. Yeah, I love that. I love that a lot, especially somebody like her who who writes short stories regularly. I feel like I always love to hear what other short story writers write, you know, who, are, who have like a short story writing process, how how they work. Yeah, I'm definitely going to bookmark what she said about uh, the intrinsic reward she gets afterward. And she reminds herself, hey, I've done this before. Yeah. You know, because you do, like, I, I get into the mindset that I can't write anymore. Every time I end something, I'm like, I no longer know how to write. Like, if I stop for a week, I just think that I am bad, you know? Yeah. So it is, I, I want to remember that. Like, I want to bookmark that, that moment going back to past work and being like you've done something like this before i thought that was brilliant yeah i i i kind of had an aha moment there too and i was like <laughs> yeah i have that feeling too when I'm, <laughs> when I'm writing a new story and i'm like oh my gosh what am i doing i don't want to do this <laughs> it's true and her advice of just like go back to your work and see like you have done it before I'm like that's Brilliant. It is. My, I think my boyfriend wants to also, AKA the producer wants to murder me sometimes because I go into tirades where I'm like, what do I think I'm doing being a writer? Why did I choose this story? Well, you know, when, when people say that, when people say, but you've done it before, you can do it again. It's like, but you have to, every time you start a new project and every time you start a new story, it's, you're starting over. You know, like you're starting from scratch. You're starting from the phase one of this new world with these new characters, with new voices. It, it, you've never written that story before. And I think that's where I get tripped up because I'm like, but I've never told this story before. I, I also think it's brilliant from Hadley's part that she has incorporated into her process, like all these ways to stop working on something and start working on something else. It's not that she's putting something aside and she's not working anymore. Right. She, she knows herself well enough that she's able to call herself out mm -hmm. and she has a system in place for herself. That's just so cool. Yeah, that's, I think we have to learn how to, I was talking to my, my boss about this the other day, like we have to work within the parameters of our own behaviors. And I think mm -hmm. the more that we understand right our own behaviors and what we what we're going to do and what we're not going to do. <laughs> you, yeah, you can say that you this know, is what you should do, but that's yeah. not how you behave. Yeah. I mean, you can say I'm going to get up every morning at five o'clock and I'm going <laughs> to write for a few hours before I have to start work. But if you're not the type of, if that's not, you know, behavior that you can play into, then like, it's not going to happen. You know, yeah. your, your brain's like, yeah, that's a great idea. But then the other part of your brain's like, well, we're not going to do that. that. We're not doing that. What are you talking about? That's crazy. All right, Megan, we're doing that talk. Anyway, we're doing it again. Yeah. So uh, if you guys 
haven't already, please go to our YouTube page and like and subscribe and ring the little bell so that every time we post a new video, uh, you will be notified of that. And please tell your tell your friends and tell your family that we're here. Uh, we are at 142 subscribers right now, and I would love to get us to 150 by the end of, of season. You don't um, think we could get to 1,000 by the end of the season? I, I'm going to say no. I want to work <laughs> okay. in our behaviors, and I want to set a goal for 150 subscribers. So tell your friends, um, you know, tell your friends who love short stories and who love audiobooks. You know, we're available on Stitcher and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon. You can download us onto your phone and take us with this, take us with you wherever you go. So you never have to be without a short story to listen to at any moment in your life. And then we've had live people comment on this story today, but if you're just seeing this now, you know, a month from now or a year into the future or 20 years, let Hadley know and us as well, like what you liked about this story. And then also let us know what kind of genres and stuff you'd like from us because we are wanting to show all different short stories to love. Absolutely, and we are accepting submissions. So if you're a writer or you know writers, please let them know that we're available. You can go to our website, nobodyreadshortstories.com and all of our submission information is there. Um, we, we accept submissions all the time, but we will be currently um, ramping up submissions for season four. So tell your friends, submit your stories. Um, also, if you wanna get in contact with us, we are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you do use Twitter, let us know. Oh, wait, let us know. Uh, do the hashtag NRSS podcast and we'll be right there. Yes. And um, while you're perusing our social media and our website, you should also check out our merchandise. Megan, that was a good segue. You win the segue today. Thank you very that much. That was smooth. That was really Thank good. Thank you. Thank you. So Jeremy is holding up our lovely pillow the black, purple, orange, and white NRSS pillow. It got this washed, baby. by the way, you all. This is shiny and clean. Thank goodness, because I don't, it's been there a while. It's been hanging out <laughs> in the back of her couch a little wait, while. So wait, happy don't, judge, don't judge me in my pillow. I'm, I'm not judging. I'm just saying that I'm happy it got a bath. Um, so you too can own this pillow. You can also own a fanny pack and leggings and socks and a and a phone case and basically just deck yourself out and nobody reads gear and then take a picture of yourself and then send it to us so that we can see it because we want the, the money you. goes straight back into everything that we need for the the show if we ever in the future have our a million followers and we're making money off of this show it's going to go into charity stuff. We, we don't ever want to make anything. We don't, never want to have a profit off of this. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're doing this for the money. joy of it. We're not making money off this. All of the proceeds go into the our website fees and then anything extra goes to uh, literacy programs. So um, you're supporting independent art and you are donating to a good cause and you get some cool swag. So you can't lose. Speaking of supporting independent writers, Megan, you have a website, and that website is MeganAMorrison.com. And I heard that when you subscribe to you, when you have news, you will let people know. Is that true? 
I do. I do. I let people know. And then if you're subscribed, then you get an email in your inbox saying, Hey, Megan, <laughs> and then you can be excited and be like, Whoa, look at this cool thing. And while you're subscribing to my website, you might as well go to Jeremy's jeremyraystories.com and sign up for his weekly newsletter in which you will receive a brand new micro story every week. They are phenomenal. He does a vote off every eight weeks. Sorry. I do, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's always interesting which ones win. I try to do all genres, and I can never predict which ones are going to be liked and which ones. They're There's always eclectic. like, yeah, they're they're eclectic. But it, I also really enjoy the ones that don't get any love. Like, <laughs> there's like one or two that don't get any votes oh. at all, and I'm like, oh, those are the reject ones. The Island yeah. of the Misfits. Oh yeah, you should you should just do a like a, a an expose of, of the reject stories like oh that would be that. interesting maybe i'll have an anthology of the rejects at some point where nobody oh, buys my work <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nobody re nobody reads these stories like nobody at all will read these um, and uh i have petrified women out i'm gonna get yelled at if i don't don't yay! do that it's going well i'm really excited about it um my arc readers are amazing like reviews are not bad so i like that and yeah. i don't know why i'm feeling weird talking about my work today but let's just know. go with it let's just you're move always, on you're always um, weird about talking about your work so oh, yeah. i'm gonna give some people some specifics since uh, you know like you. so okay. jeremy has a new book petrified women that's out it's on amazon you can download it right away and read it please read it it's amazing jeremy did such a wonderful job with this story um it's so real like you just really feel like like you're there with the characters and it's tense but very thrilling make um, sure you know the content warnings too i don't want yes. anybody to like go into it without knowing Yes, um, but it's uh, but Jeremy does such a fantastic job with the material. So, man, um, it's so nice of you to to pitch it for me. Next oh, time I'll be better. Cool. Next next week I will really pitch it. Uh huh. Um, okay, we'll work on it. Speaking of, we have a really awesome story next week. It's our last story of the season. It's our last story. I'm so excited. It's a uh, fairy tale written by Eugene Ramos, and you guys are just gonna love it. You gotta um, say the title. I just love the title. I don't know why I love the title, but I love it. You say the title. No. Do you know the title? Yeah. Pretty you was her face. Title. Pretty was her face. Yeah, so it's- oh, I got nervous though. I was like, what if I remember <laughs> <laughs> That's why I did that was I was like, I, I love the title, but I'm scared. Yeah. So if if you think of what what kind of fairy tale has a beautiful title, like pretty was her face, it is everything that you're thinking of. It's, it's such a great it's title. Everything. Yeah. yeah, it's, it's not so it's not a generic title. It totally is valid to the story. Yeah, yeah it's so beautiful. So please come back next week uh, for the, the last the last episode full story episode of season three. Um, it's gonna be so special. Oh man, I'm so sad to you all. Like this was just such a good season of authors. Like I, I just wanna force them all to do another story and then we just don't go on break. <laughs> I know, if only we could just do stories all the time. Someday, Megan, someday. Someday, someday we'll just read stories all. We'll do 52 a year. All right, you all make sure you come back next week. Thank you all. See you next week.
Bye. Bye. No one reads short stories anymore. I really don't know what they're written for. Go write a short story and throw it out the door. Cause no one reads short stories. Funny, sad, or gory. No one reads short stories anymore. Yes, no one reads short stories.